You're listening to a Fat Cat Media Podcast. If you love caravanning, four-wheel driving, fishing, camping, gold detecting, exploring places, history and visiting destinations all rolled into each episode, welcome to the Road Less Travel Podcast. A podcast that documents and captures the Australian spirit of travel, discovery and adventure. And each week you can join myself where together we'll experience adventures all around Australia with glimpses into a world that's faded into history. The people, the places, the way of life. This is the Road Less Travelled. This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. The Road Less Travelled. G'day everyone, it's Nikki. Welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travelled podcast, the podcast that takes you all around Australia, all through Australia with tales, recipes for some great cooking on the road and all adventures rolled into one. Welcome along to season three of the Road Less Travelled podcast and trust that you've all been well rested after some holidays and if you have been working all through the festive season and you've got some holidays coming up or you're going to take some leave, do it. It is well deserved and to all those people that do work over the festive season and the um, public holidays. We appreciate it 100%. You can catch up with all the previous episodes and upcoming episodes to the podcast by subscribing to the podcast. You can find us on Audible. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a whole lot more. We're part of the ACAST network, and you can find out more of the show by visiting our website, which is fatcatmedia.com.au, and you'll find plenty of information on the website of uh, what we do with both Fat Cat Media and the Road Less Travel Podcast. You can follow the podcast too on social media, on Facebook and also on YouTube and as well on Instagram. For Instagram, it's the Road Less Travel Podcast 2021 and that's where you'll find us. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never come back from any holiday feeling relaxed, refreshed and reinvigorated or eager to get back into work. I come back with a taste of freedom, still fresh in my mouth, a renewed hatred for work and a strong suspicion that this is not what I should be doing and spending my life doing. If that's you, join us on the Road Less Travel Podcast. And as well, if you've got a trip that you've just done or you've got one coming up, drop me a line, which is fatcat at iinet.net.au. That's fatcat, P-H-A-T-C-A-T at iinet.net.au. Love to hear from you. And as well, you can upload pictures on our Facebook and Instagram as well. Give us a tag and a share and a like. But it is on to this week's episode of the podcast. And before we get into this week's trip, I wanted to do a little bit of a chat to you about um, something that happened to us uh, during the break. I uh, got myself a little bit crook and we needed some um, pretty urgent medical attention. So we, Jeff called an ambulance and ambulance in the hospital, long story short, all good. But it got me thinking when I got the bill from ambulance, make sure that you get ambulance cover if you are traveling. It is so important from a trip from... um, the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne into Melbourne uh, was $1,300. Luckily, we are covered by uh, private health insurance. That was not an issue. Also got me thinking too, I do know of some other people when we were in the motocross scene in Western Australia and obviously with motocross racing, um, um, you do (laughs) leave yourself open to susceptible injuries and uh, trips to hospital and flying doctors as well. So make sure that you get ambulance cover for when you're traveling or even when you're not traveling, when you're just at home, make sure you get it. Also make sure when you do get that ambulance cover, there's various um, coverage that you can get. 
If you do a lot of travelling like us, make sure that it has the coverage of the Royal Flying Doctors, that that it has um, coverage for you and your partner to get into wherever you need to get to, to hospitals or whatever, and maybe also look with your own insurance for travel insurance or if you have, like us, um, (coughs) excuse me, insurance for caravan and and cars and also for roadside assistance, that those all those little combinations are able to get you, your car and your caravan, even your pet, uh, to where you need to go so that the patient is 100% looked after, but also the support that, that is available for partners and spouses as well. So just make sure that you are covered and have a look into it, whether it's through your private health insurance, your local ambulance fund, and make sure that that is coverage. If you do travel outside of your state, make sure that you do have coverage to get you interstate and uh, looked after as well. It's stinking hot weather. It's summer, so what better topic than to talk about deserts, and in particular the Tanami Desert. And I've been doing plenty of research and reading over the break. And this desert, northern Australia, situated in the Northern Territory and in WA as well. The Tanami Desert, it's a a very rocky terrain with small hills and plenty of cacti and it was the Northern Territory's final frontier and was not fully really explored by Australians of European descent until well into the 20th century. It is traversed by the Tanami Track. The name Tanami is thought to be sort of an anglicised version of the Walpiri name of the area, meaning Chanami, meaning never die, and this is referred to in certain rock holes in the desert which were said to never run dry. And under the name Tanami, the desert is classified as an interior Australian bioregion, and it compromises, it comprises, it comprises of 64,240,000 plus acres. You will need permits to go through various areas. It is a unique, one of um, the most important biological areas to be found in Australia, particularly as it provides refuge for several of Australia's rare and endangered species. There are several mines in the Tanami Desert, including the Granite's Gold Mine and the Coyote Gold Mine, and plenty of Indigenous groups. It's part of the Kukachi and Walpari country, and uh, the Tiraburan, I think that's how you pronounce the name, live at the edge of the desert. There's a large number of cultural sites as I mentioned in the Tanami as well. It's a indigenous protected area from uh, 2012 on 10,000, I think it's 10,000 10 million hectares of the desert area which is uh, 38% was declared an indigenous protected area or conservation zone so you will need to get permits to go into this particular area as we did. We called it O'Grady's Well. It was the largest most outstanding native well any member of the party has ever found. Down this, holding onto ropes linked together, I climbed until it became too dark to see. Peeping ahead with a lighted candle, I espied a little pool of water where the lubras had left off work. This wrote Michael Terry in his book Sand and Sun regarding his visiting of this important native well known to the locals as Yalara, where he was exploring the remote areas of central Australia in 1932. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Willie Kempen uh, was an adventurer and he's uh, still out there doing it and he had central, a central land council permit to go out to O'Grady's well and with a list of adventurers we tagged along. If you have the opportunity, do make sure that you get the correct permits. Um, they don't hand them out willy-nilly and if you have the opportunity to visit the area, make sure you do so. We met in Alice Springs and a five-vehicle convoy pulled into the community of Nirripi in the heart of the Tanami Desert, around 360 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs and 150 kilometres west of the main Tanami Road. 
This particular country is absolutely desolate, barren. You don't get service stations, there's no milk bars, there's no delis, there's no places where you can go get bottled water. You need to be totally self-sufficient. When I say self-sufficient, that is food, water, mechanical repairs, um, all your camping and equipment that you will need. Fuel is 100%. You must carry it with you. There's just no excuses. And I guess the route west from Tanami Road took us through the Aboriginal land and we camped for the first night close to a, a really spectacular but an unnamed gap in the Sidley Range. From a vantage point on the hills, we could see in the distance a line of peaks sort of to the southeast jutting up from the surrounding flat sand plains. And the most prominent of these peaks was Central Mount Wedge. Now our maps, and you must carry specific maps for this particular area, you can't just rely on Google Maps, um, the map showed a waterhole nearby and after a short search we found it tucked up at the base of some of these cliffs in the fold of the range. There was these cute little zebra finches, they flitted in and out from the nearby bushes for a speedy drink from, as I said, life-giving water, but that was the only movement we saw in this secluded little spot, it was a great place to camp. The next day, on day two, we passed through New Haven, uh, the one-time pastoral property that many years ago had been acquired by BirdLife Australia and the Australian Wildlife Conservation. It's now run as a conservation park and you can camp. It's allowed on this remote property and bird watching obviously is encouraged, but we pushed along past a sign that read private track, use at your own risk. Quite suddenly, we arrived at Niripini, a community of around 150 people, although at most times there are considerably few inhabitants and we found the well-stocked store and filled up with diesel for the vehicles and, of course, some nice little chockies for the people. We also met a number of the traditional owners of the area who gave our trip their blessings and allowed us to photograph the spectacular mural that graces the local school. And here we were also told that they were hoping to set up a small tourist campground among the spectacular peaks to the south of the community. So that evening, after travelling on little-used tracks from Neuropini, we skirted around the edge of the Ethel Creek on a track that was about to vanish completely into the surrounding grass and spinifex. And among this, we had trouble finding a campsite free of the vegetation. When we finally did set up camp, again, we're travelling in a group, disaster almost struck when a small campfire licked the flames into nearby grass and fire erupted quickly around us. And there was a hastily grabbed bucket of water, a couple of fire extinguishers and a fire blanket had the flames soon after control. It was a near thing and a really valuable lesson on how quickly disaster can strike out in these areas. The next day we turned off the track, struck west and followed the wheel marks left by a group of traditional owners and the Aboriginal rangers who'd been out there to their traditional lands. We soon left their marks as they swung north to areas we didn't have a permit to attend. The first few kilometres further west over flat grassy spinifex plains and between what at first were widely spaced dunes was easy going and our plan as a group was to head west and cut south of the McEwen Hills, an area our permit forbade us to visit, bypassing them by at least a kilometre. The vegetation soon changed, subtly at first, with the spinifex clumps getting bigger and the waving fronds of the seed heads taller, we passed through a band of thick, low scrub of sort of spindly wattle, dense cassia and emu bush. Now, rain had fallen across much of this country a couple of months previously, so in places amongst the scrub and spinifex were splashed from brilliant colours from a myriad of daisies, flowering honeys, there was rattleprod gavillias and corkwood hakias. 
Now, we had swung south to the edge of a dune as we tried to get away from the thick scrub when a call over the UHF told us of the first puncture, and that was the first of many. There was a quick plug repair and we were off again, but we'd driven less than a kilometre when our little convoy ground to a halt with another tyre whistling to empty. Now, if you're up the front, busting scrub, um, you need to have tough MRF cross-ply tyres. And if you want to traverse that kind of area in radials, the MRF tyres are a dog of a thing to drive on bitumen roads, but they are out here in this kind of sort of area. They're worth their weight in gold. At one stage, one of the patrols smashed into a conglomerate of sort of dome-shaped limestone rocks hidden uh, underneath the thick grass and spinifex. And these outcrops, which may cover an area of many square metres and also kilometres, are by all accounts the remnants of ancient mound springs, which of course is the main structure of the spring having eroded away. They are held to hit unexpectedly in a vehicle and it was lucky that the old patrol bounced its way through relatively unscathed. That evening, we pulled up in a large cleared patch of sandy plain for our night's camp and dotted across the sand were scatters, clumps of daisies, firebush, purple parakeets, muted pastel colours of mullamullas and a few taller grevilleas and hakias plus the old drooping desert oak. It completed the scene and made for a very pleasant camp. And out in these areas, you are definitely searching for shade. So as we approached the Sanford Cliffs early the next afternoon, there was thick bands of scrub which thwarted our progress, and at times we were even driving blind with scrub taller than the windscreen hindering our way. And then suddenly we were amongst a large clump of sort of tea trees with the spinifex giving way to grassy tussocks, and then it was much easier going here. It was also a sign of better watered country as the water from the infrequent storms ran off the rocky slopes of the nearby Sanford Cliffs. Now, I've searched for a number of native water holes and rock holes during various remote desert, desert travels, and rarely are they found easily. In the book Sun and Sand, O'Grady's Well was described as being found at the eastern end of the Sandford Cliffs, and had he approached the cliffs from the east, as we were doing on this trip, well, we pulled up close to the cliffs and spread out our party, all keen to find the well, and for us it was remarkably easy with a one of our travelling companions spying it from a lofty rock that he had climbed to get a better vantage point. It was lying in an all, almost sort of, in, in, you couldn't see this old dried up creek bed that ran from a low rocky amphitheatre and the well was located just about 50 metres or so from the more dominant rocky cliffs at the southern end of the cliffs. It was surrounded by tea tree. It was much smaller and shallower than when Michael Terry had first seen it back in the 1930s, only about five metres below ground level with no water in it, although I'm sure with a bit of digging, water could be found there. It is obvious that when the rain does fall here, a lot of silt gets washed down the creek and fills the well. So in days past, the Aboriginal people would have been kept busy keeping it clean and accessible to its reported depth of 10 metres or more. Even though it was shallower and not big as first reported, we were mighty pleased with ourselves. So we went and spent the next day exploring around the rocky hills and found the odd small cave and overhang but little else. We saw very little signs of life with no wallabies or kangaroos present and although we learnt from their droppings that they may sometimes use the caves or overhangs for shade and protection, we definitely got the impression, though, that these were isolated cliffs and that they were rarely used. 
So the next day saw us heading back east. Once we made the track network, we turned south heading towards the outstation of Emu Bore. We took a new mining track that had been, we'd been told about and given permission to use by one of the traditional owners. So at Emu Bore, we picked up another track which headed south and then swung west for a long run down a valley between the east-west dunes. We arrived at Kelpimi Native Well and were sidetracked while trying to find the water point amongst some very tall gum trees and cooler bars. And eventually we found them and found the well rather a few hundred metres south. It's dry depression attracting wandering camels by the look of the churned up dust bowls with large animals using the dust bath nearby. And from here the track swung east to run between the dunes again before swinging south and eventually coming out at the Gary Junction Road at the Sandy Blight Junction. Our adventure was nearly over as we turned east for the run back to Alice Springs. Now having been to one of Michael Terry's most noteworthy destination, the other on the list was Chugga Curry, which I hope to visit later on. We've only got one more to go, but the Cleveland Hills will have to wait for another day. I've got to tell you about Michael Terry. He's as well, well, I guess he might not be as well known to four-wheel drivers such as uh, the tale of Len Bedell. Do you know about Len Bedell? We'll talk about him a little bit later. But Michael Terry pioneered the use of vehicles for exploring remote desert country. When we come back from the break, we'll find out more about Michael Terry and some of the great explorers of the 20th century of Australia. Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the Road Less Travel Podcast with me, Nikki Shea. Fat Cat Media has over 25 years within motorsport media and marketing. Fat Cat Media has the proven knowledge and expertise to help your next event. We have a variety of services available. They are including West MX Coaching and Development Schools, where we conduct schools and clinics across various metropolitan and country clubs throughout Australia. We cater our motocross coaching for beginners right through to intermediate junior riders. The coaching clinics are solely created and catered and also designed for smaller numbers to effectively support each rider and hone in on their particular requirements. Whilst our schools are designed for two days right through to five-day camps with multiple Motorcycling Australia accredited coaches giving individual coaching, drills, training, development and feedback throughout the duration. Our prices for coaching start at $150. With consultancy and advice, Fat Cat Media creates and caters for a variety of platforms, whether it be as a racer or for those within the motorcycle and motorsport industry. Have you considered the future? It is important to focus on what's ahead. Well, is it? Absolutely yes. How do you expect to move forward if you have no benchmark, no goals, no achievements and no strategic plan and direction on how to achieve your goals in the industry? It's mind-bogglingly crazy how folks will fork out thousands of dollars on motocross bikes, equipment and gear, yet have no clear plan on how to execute, execute their racing gear. Prices start at $130. Be inspired with our seminars and motivational speaking. We really enjoy and receive a lot of satisfaction and overwhelming feedback in conducting seminars. This involves giving motivational speeches and inspiring people to challenge themselves and become better at what they want to become better at. Relying on years in the media plus a life-changing health issue, Nikki will challenge and transform her audiences. If you truly and honestly want to help someone reach their true potential, stop answering all their questions and solving all their problems. Prices start at $130. With over 15 years commentating throughout Western Australia and Australian motocross and motorsports, Fat Cat Media prides itself on providing sound industry knowledge plus versatile media experiences and our commentators can interpret what's happening on and off the track with reliable information obtained from within the industry, when it happens and as it happens. 
Fat Cat Media's trackside commentators have the ability to develop a perspective on the subject through research, experience, interviews, and of course by attending events. Prices start at $150. Do you have a race resume? Step one of obtaining sponsorship is a race resume and write a biography. Take advantage of our professional writing and massive mailing list of media outlets and sporting companies. You can complement this with professional photography, video or audio clips to send out to potential sponsors or partners. Whilst we do not go out and obtain sponsorship for you, a race resume is the first step for you to build relationships and foster ongoing partnerships with potential sponsors. Prices start at $150. For further information, head to fatcatmedia.com.au or drop us an email fatcat at iinet.net.au. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the Road Less Travel podcast. Before we went to the break, I was talking to you about Michael Terry. Now, when Michael Terry died in 1981, he was writing his autobiography called The Last Explorer, and it was yet to be finalised. So his sister, Charlotte Barnard, compiled the work, and it was published in 1987. And in 1990, as part of a group rather led by TV host Glenn Ridge, the team travelled to one of Terry's greatest discoveries and later interviewed Charlotte for the subsequent documentary. During the course of the filming, they were lucky enough to interview a great Central Australian character, Bush millionaire, long-time station owner and manager, including Temper Downs, 1930, and Glen Helen in 1940, and historian was the legendary Brian Bowman. He had met Terry a number of times, but his opinion of him was diametrically opposite to Charlotte's. Now, Terry was born in England in 1899, and as soon as he was 18 and old enough to join the military, he enlisted in the Royal Naval Air Service Armoured Cars Unit. He served in Russia, was gassed, and received a medical discharge at the end of 1918 with a prepaid ticket to Western Australia. Arriving in Perth, just before he turned 20, he got himself a job as a car delivery driver, but soon ended up working at Kadabia Station on the Coral Coast in the northwest Cape of WA, when there wasn't a tourist to be seen anywhere up that way. And when that work fell through, he bummed his way south and then east on a troop ship to Sydney, where he was soon selling cars. After a stint founding and owning a transport company carrying goods in northern New South Wales, in mid-1922, he headed north to Longreach, where he worked in a woolshed before going droving. Soon afterwards, he found himself in Winton with, as he said in his biography, nothing to do. Attracted to the vast, untracked country to the west, he and a mate Dick bought a 1913 Model T Ford. They overhauled it, and in February 1923, they set off on an adventure that was to be the first ever crossing of northern Australia by motor vehicle. Working for food and fuel in isolated properties along the way, their, run, their luck rather ran out as they approached the WA border. With no fuel in the Ford, they shouldered their swags and set off to find the nearest homestead. Two days later, and near dead from thirst, they stumbled onto a small soak that quenched their ravenous needs. 
After wandering for a couple of days, they realised that they were lost and retreated back to the soak where they split up. Dick taking water and the last of the food to make the dash for the homestead somewhere ahead. Dick was later found by some Aboriginal stockmen and, as the police report stated, in a state of collapse, nearly perished. On Dick's advice, a party was dispatched and a patrolling policeman found Terry in a similar state who was then reunited with his mate. Without any further major mishap, they then reached Broome on October the 4th, giving vent to hearty yells of very joy, they are quoted as saying. Back in Sydney a couple of months later, Terry recounted the story over drinks to a friend and the next day she introduced Terry to the editor of the Sun newspaper and his literacy career began. He took a trip to the USA in 1924. He met Henry Ford seeking some funding for his past adventure and was quickly sent packing. Disenchanted a little, he continued to the UK where he lectured to the Royal Geographical Society which resulted in him winning a major award from the Society the following year and as well as a grant from the National Geographic Society. That same year he wrote and published a book called Uncross Unknown Australia. Back in Australia in July 1925, he and a small party of men headed out of Darwin giving two guy roadless vehicles with trailers and riding an AJS motorbike and sidecar. The British-made guy vehicles, they were powered by a four-cylinder petrol engine with inclined valves and an inclined detachable cylinder head in two parts that were known for easy servicing. A four-speed gearbox with reverse was standard, but down the back the trucks were fitted with factory option Caterpillar tracks. While those tracks improved traction, they were prone to serious wear of the track pins and bushes and seals and were serious headache for the party of repairers. Another problem they encountered was keeping the vehicles cool in the slow, tough-going conditions. Their speed, by Terry's own account, was not exceeding 20 miles per hour and more often than not much slower than this. And he says the machines were coaxed every mile of the way so as to give them the greatest opportunity of performing in true British style. They sorted their cooling problems by shipping in and fitting extra radiators to each of the trucks at the Gordon Downs station just west of the WA Northern Territory border. The five-man party had aimed southwest from Catherine towards Wave Hill and then followed the Sturt Creek deep into the desert past Lake Stretch and the Balloona Homestead onto Gregory's Salt Sea, as Lake Gregory was called then. Then they headed along a completely untracked and a very little-used Canning Stock Route to Well 48 and the now well-visited spots for the Canning Stock Route visitors, travellers of the Breeden Hill and Breeden Pool. They were the first people to travel any of the northern section of the stock route with motorised vehicles. Heading west the short distance to Mount Cornish, they turned back from their goal of Joanna Spring and retaced their steps north to Balloona. From there they headed on through Ruby Plains Homestead to the small outpost of Fitzroy Crossing and then they followed the Fitzroy River downstream to near Yeda Homestead which was southeast of Derby. From Yeda they headed due west crossing the Fitzroy River before pushing on quickly to Broome in the Indian Ocean arriving there in late November. In his 1927 book, Through a Land of Promise, while the movie of the expedition The Grip of the Wanderlust showed by a private audience to the then Prince of Wales, who was later King Edward VIII, has since been lost. Terry's third expedition, it started in Port Hedland in May of 1928 with four men driving two six-wheel Morris trucks. 
They headed via De Grey, Pardu and the Wallal homesteads north to Broome, finding and naming a remote spot along the way about 175 kilometres inland from the coast, which they called Mount Morris. From Broome, they quickly pushed on to Fitzroy Crossing and then on to Halls Creek where they searched for gold before heading to the Tanami Goldfields via Flora Valley and the Gordon Downs Station. Between Tanami and the Lander River, they searched extensively for gold, visiting remote brooks soak in the process. Fred Brooks had been killed here by Aboriginals just a couple of weeks previously and this led to what was to be called the Coniston Massacres where many, possibly a hundred or more Aboriginal people were killed in retribution. Terry and his men didn't linger and with their gold searching over they pushed on to Alice Springs and then followed the Fink River south to Horseshoe Bend and then to Oodnadatta, Hawker, Adelaide and finally in late December on to Melbourne. Now, Terry couldn't enthuse enough about the Morris trucks he's used and included in his book of the expedition Hidden Wealth and Hiding People, written in 1931, lots of facts and figures that remain of interest for, I guess, even today's cross-country desert travellers. For instance, fuel consumption of the trucks varied between 5 to 18 miles per gallon, while oil consumption was only a gallon or 4.5 litres every 250 miles or so. They changed engine oil every 300 to 500 miles, oiled the chassis every 250 to 400 miles and greased the rear suspension every 40 miles when travelling cross-country. Now, tyre pressures on the 32 by 6-inch Dunlop tyres was kept at 80 psi on the road, while through trackless country, 50 psi was found to be the best compromise between maximum adhesion and resistance to the stumps. Even so, the lead truck suffered the lead truck rather suffered 41 punctures. Many modern-day desert and remote area travellers can certainly relate to that. So between 1929 and 1931, in the gloom and the heart of the Depression, Terry led a number of expeditions in Central Australia looking for minerals. Now these included three trips back to the Tanami, as well as through the Tompkinson and Blackstone Ranges, the Warburton Ranges and Long Traverse northwest of Mount Olga to Ernest Giles' Shuren Mural Crescent, that majestic sweep of desert ranges just north of today's Great Central Road east of Wakara. In his book, Untold Miles, published in 1932, recounts those adventures in the Morris Trucks, and I really urge you if you can get a copy of it. In 1932, he led a camel-only expedition west from Alice Springs in the company of legendary bushman Ben Nicker. It was during this trip that he met Brian Bowman when Bowman owned and was running the Tempe Downs. Now, Bowman, like many Central Australian bushes, didn't have much time for the Englishman and much later in life, he compared Terry most unfavorably with Bushman and especially Ben Nicker, but then again, few people could hold a candle to Nicker when it came to living and surviving in the bush. And Terry himself was glowing of his praise of Ben for Nicker's biography, Red Bushman of the Red Heart by Judy Robinson, published in 1999. Get yourself a copy of that too. Now, during the 1932 expedition, the party covered more than 3,000 kilometres without meeting another white man the group unloading their camels for the last time near Laverton in WA. And on that trip, they discovered a deep and well-worked Aboriginal well that Terry called O'Grady's Well, just east, east rather, of the northern end of Lake Mackay. In his book, Sand and Sun, he alludes to the theory that it re- that's repeated through many of his writings that the water point was so well-constructed and deep that he believed other beings from Egypt or beyond had been instrumental in its construction. And it is a deep Aboriginal watering hole. 
The following year, in 1933, Terry and the same small group of men headed out from Ellis Springs again on camels and rode and walked north to Vaughan Springs Homestead and on to Surprise Well, now full to overflowing from recent widespread rains, unlike the previous year. And then he went on to O'Grady's Well. Pushing west, they passed through the northern end of Lake Mackay and travelled through the Alec Ross Range before coming to Carnegie's Bluff and then turning north. Now here he was made when he con- he was to make rather what he considered later in life as his greatest discovery. Now over the years he'd heard about a fabled valley much talked about by Aboriginals over vast areas of Australia. Chugga Curry was a verdant oasis and in 1933 it lived up to its name when Terry's party became the first Europeans to visit. Tucked into a great dip in the desert plateau, Terry named the verdant creek he first discovered Brookman Waters and then the depression itself, the Hidden Basin. Later he named it Lake Hazlett and Nicker Creek while he mentioned a number of rock holes and streams trickling water from the cliffs. He never mentioned Labby Labby, which is one of the most permanent water points in the whole region. Now only a couple of other white Men have visited this spot, the most notable being the great anthropologist, biologist and photographer Donald Thompson in the 1950s and 60s. Glenn Ridge and the team visited the remote basin in 1990 and then this oasis was ravaged by drought and hungry and thirsty camels. And each year, possibly one four-wheel drive group seems to make this remote refuge and um, there's, I think back in 2015 or 14, they found lakes of fresh water and thick green vegetation out that way, much as when Terry had first visited in the 1930s. So Terry was in the UK when World War II broke out and he quickly found his way back to Australia where numerous attempts to join up were knocked back because of his health. So commissioned in the Department of Main Roads, he wrote about about the history of the department and the construction of the Stuart Highway in his book Bulldozer, written in 1945. In 1961, after numerous trips to bolster his freelance writing, he set off on another mineral quest to the Cleland Hills in the Northern Territory. He'd been there before, and while the area was founded founded by William Tatekers in 1889, others had also visited it, and it was Terry on his second trip who found the the many ancient rock engravings, including stylized faces that Cleland Hills now has become famous for. And these faces had Terry convinced that had been some foreign contact in the distant past, and from then on secret visitors become somewhat of a spooky obsession with him when he travelled widely, and he also wrote avidly about it. That work is carried on by others, whether you believe it or not, and can be most easily viewed at secretvisitors.wordpress.com. Now in 1974, in his mid-70s, still sprightly but in too poor health to do much distant travelling, he wrote and published War of the Warramullahs, which is an insightful and also sympathetic account, especially for its day, of his dealings with experiences with the Aboriginals he's met on many of his expedition. Michael Terry passed away in September 1981 in Sydney, his place in Australian history well recorded but nearly forgotten these days. Of all the places he named, he named none after himself, saying it wasn't the way a member of the Royal Geographical Society behaved. Still, in 1957, the Terry Range in WA, which is south of the Gary Junction Road and west of Jupiter Well, has been named after him. In 1988, he and his camel, Dick, featured on the bicentennial, bicentennial rather commemorative $10 note, and while it's as close to the general public got to remembering this great explorer and motor vehicle pioneer, as four-wheel drivers and adventurers, we can visit and revel in many of the places he found and named. And when you do, just remember to touch your hat and pay silent tribute to this extraordinary explorer 
and that is the story of Michael Terry. I hope you've enjoyed this week's adventure on the Road Less Travel podcast and some are modern day bushmen, some are truly great explorers and others are pioneer characters of the outback. It's all fascinating people like Larry Wells, David Lindsay, John Forrest, Ludwig Leichhardt, Charles Sturt, Ernest Giles, Edward John Eyre, there's so many, Burke and Wills of course, Reg Sprigg, Tom Cole, Sidney Kidman, there's so many that will bring you over the course of the Road Less Travel podcast. My name is Nikki Shea and I look forward to your company next week on the Road Less Travel podcast. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Traveled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. 